everybody. Thank you so much for coming. We're going to go ahead and get started. My name is Laura Odato. I'm the Director of Government Affairs for the Cato Institute. And today our panel is going to be talking about nuclear weapons policy, how it developed, our current situation on the ground, and where we should move forward. This was prompted by a paper published by our two panelists today called The End of Overkill, Reassessing U.S. Nuclear Weapons Policy, published by the Cato Institute in September. There are copies available outside, and as always, you can go on our website to find this and more writing by Chris and Ben. That's Cato.org. I'll briefly introduce our two speakers and then turn things over to them. First up is Ben Friedman, who's a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at Cato. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. Ben is the author of dozens of op-eds and journal articles and co-editor of two books, including Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a Ph.D. candidate in political science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Following Ben will be Chris Pebble, who's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. Chris has authored three books on defense and foreign policy issues, and in addition to his books, he has published over 150 articles in major publications. Before joining Cato in 2003, Chris taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He was also a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served on board the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. Chris also holds a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. And now I will turn things over to Ben. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm uh, going to talk about the historical part of this. So if you're uh, just interested in the policy part, you could take a 13 or 14 minute nap and, and wake up for Chris's uh, section and uh, hear all the good policy stuff. But um, our argument in this paper uh, is that U.S. security doesn't require a triad of uh, nuclear delivery systems, uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine launched ballistic missiles, uh, and bombers. And in fact, we should keep uh, only a monad of uh, submarine based missiles. Uh, for a think tank paper, for a think tank paper, this is a very sort of historical argument, especially in its attention to the arguments uh, about U.S. nukes and, and how we uh, justified them. Uh, we show in the paper that the triad was a result of competition, uh, both with the Soviet Union and among the U.S. military services. Um, and uh, that the reasons we hear for the triad uh, are more rationales than motivations, post hoc justifications more than causes. And we look at how those arguments became reified uh, and avoided scrutiny due to sort of the decline in inter-service competition, uh, even as their always shaky technological and political foundations eroded. Before I get to that, that history, let me first say that our argument is based uh, on economy. Uh, not on uh, the changes in U.S. foreign policy that Chris and I advocate elsewhere. So while we would like to dispense with uh, many of the alliances and missions that create uh, the requirements for our current military and our nuclear force, the argument here is that we could go to a monad even if we kept all those missions and alliances. In fact, you could have a very hawkish uh, set of foreign policy preferences, more hawkish really than uh, we have today in the United States and still agree with our proposal. Um, and that's because, uh, as we'll discuss, of the capability that our, our missiles now have. So to the history, the uh, origins of the triad uh, were, uh, came really in the, in the uh, 50s during the Eisenhower administration. U.S. defense strategy at the time was to defend allies, especially Western Germany, uh, with massive retaliation or the new look, uh, which was largely a response to the 
unpopular Korean War. Uh, the new look said uh, communist attacks would be met with overwhelming uh, nuclear weapons response, which at the time would be delivered by Air Force bombers under the control of Strategic Air Command, part of the Air Force. Uh, that strategy sought to take advantage of uh, U.S. Uh, nuclear monopoly and then superiority to save money. Uh, nukes uh, were thought to be, uh, and I think were, the, the cheaper alternative to ground forces. They gave you more bang for the buck. Um, and massive retaliation of the new look was an Air Force-led strategy. Uh, under Eisenhower, therefore, the Air Force share of the defense budget approached 50%, which was, uh, came a 20% increase, roughly, uh, which came at the expense of the other services, the Navy and the uh, Army, which had to basically split the other half. But missiles were then changing things. Uh, fission had allowed the development of, of thermal nuclear weapons, which massively increased uh, nuclear weapons yield and allowed warheads small enough to fit on ballistic missiles uh, that seemed likely then to reach uh, soon uh, intercontinental range and certainly would overcome any air defense system we had. Um, the Soviets had by then developed uh, bombers that could fly, albeit one way, uh, to the United States to deliver uh, nukes. And they tested thermonuclear hydrogen bomb in, in 55. And with the Sputnik launch in 1957, they showed everybody what U.S. intelligence already knew, that they were developing uh, these missiles uh, to, and uh, the ability to carry these war warheads. So the big concern of the day was that uh, U.S. forces, U.S. nuclear weapons forces, might be vulnerable to attack by Soviet bombers or IC ICBMs, which in theory could allow the Soviets to disarm the U.S. force on the ground, or credibly threaten to do so and blackmail us out of defending our allies. And that was really the fear that gave us the bomber gap uh, and the, uh, in the mid-50s and the missile gap uh, in the late 50s. Uh, and both of those, by the way, proved not to just to be wrong, but backwards, in that there was a gap and it was in favor of the United States in both cases. Uh, but nonetheless, the gaps created public alarm that uh, pressured, uh, successfully pressured the Eisenhower administration to spend more on defense, especially ballistic missiles, uh, which every service was then, each service was then working on. So um, you have the situation where uh, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy are all sort of scrambling uh, to develop ballistic missile programs, and after years of bureaucratic competition, two programs basically emerge as the arsenal's mainstay. The Navy's Polaris submarine launched ballistic missile, which was deployed right at the end of the Eisenhower administration, the Air Force's uh, I, uh, Minuteman ICBM, which became operational shortly thereafter the next year. With Polaris, the Navy, uh, which was uh, eager to win back relevance and budget uh, from the Air Force, uh, argued that their system was far more economical than ICBMs or bombers uh, because survivability, the survivability of submarines in the sea meant that you didn't have to buy more uh, to make them defensible just because uh, the Soviets deployed uh, more missiles. So you avoided that uh, sort of arms race uh, but maintained deterrence. The Air Force, uh, having sort of accepted that they couldn't kill or control Polaris, uh, had to come up with sort of a response argument, a rationale for why uh, keeping ICBMs and bombers was necessary, given Polaris. Uh, and they found it. They found that rationale in the work uh, at the RAND Corporation, that some of which was sponsored, or most of which was sponsored by the Air Force. And the argument there was that even if you solved the survivability problem, um, the Soviet arsenal arguably threatened the U.S. defense of Europe and what was, what was called extended deterrence in that jargon. Because once you're in a situation of mutually assured destruction, a threat of nuclear retaliation to defend Europe, 
was suicidal. And if it's suicidal, it's not rational, and therefore it's not credible. And if it's not credible, it doesn't deter. So uh, nukes, in this view, checkmate each other uh, and allow the Soviets, who were thought to be conventionally superior, to sort of waltz into Europe. We couldn't stop them. Uh, the solution uh, at Rand and then uh, fr from the Air Force was a disarming first strike. You had to keep the ability uh, to destroy the Soviet forces. And you do that by concentrating uh, your fire on those forces with accuracy. So you have a disarming first strike uh, against their forces, but leave their cities unharmed. And, and that was called counterforce, uh, which means attacking their forces, no cities doctrine. By hitting the forces, you limit the damage they can do in response to your attack, so a non-crazy person would do it. And by leaving their cities unharmed, you make those cities into hostages that encourage restraint amid war, uh, either halting their attack or at least sparing U.S. cities. And to the Air Force, at least, uh, this doctrine had the virtue of carving out a niche for their uh, systems. ICBMs, they said, would have the accuracy and reliability to target most Soviet missile silos. Uh, although only in 1960 did the Air Force really begin to optimize accuracy in Minuteman. And bombers, they said, uh, were, would carry the warheads powerful and accurate enough to destroy especially hard uh, silos or deeply buried targets. And because... SLBMs, the submarines, were uh, essentially invulnerable to attack, but relatively inaccurate. Uh, they were thought to be perfect for holding in reserve to threaten those Soviet cities, uh, because that didn't require much accuracy, just hitting a city. So you have this division of labor that reifies uh, the status quo. Uh, upon taking office, the Kennedy administration basically embraced uh, this strategy for several reasons. First, uh, Kennedy in campaigning had blasted the Eisenhower administration's massive retaliation strategy, so we needed something new to say, here's how we've improved matters. Second, uh, the administration hired, uh, especially in the Defense Department under Robert McNamara, hired a lot of the RAND uh, analysts who, develop, who had developed this thinking. Third, it would have been a brutal fight for the administration uh, up here on the Hill uh, to kill uh, a leg of the triad. Uh, so it sort of became theirs. Uh, each leg sort of became theirs. You know, once you go to Congress and have to testify on behalf of these systems, even if you really don't want them, you have to make arguments for them. Um, and fourth, uh, the strategy was a way to keep West Germany uh, from getting nukes, a prospect that had alarmed the Soviets so much that they'd basically started the Berlin crisis in an attempt, uh, successful, by the way, to prevent that. Um, one way to help settle that crisis and keep the Germans satisfied with the, under the U.S. nuclear umbrella was this strategy, because it was basically a way to say, don't worry, uh, we have a uh, theory to use these weapons to defend you that's not crazy, that doesn't require suicidal threats that won't be believed. But the trouble with uh, the counterforce theory uh, is that it has no upper limits. As the, as the Soviets build more missiles for fear of vulnerability, you have to build more missiles to respond, to go after those Missiles and McNamara, uh, the Secretary of Defense, quickly realized that uh, by trying to maintain uh, disarming first strike capability against uh, the Soviets as they built more and more ICBMs in the 60s, you'd be giving a growing share of GDP to the Air Force. So within a few years, he changed his mind about this and banned counterforce from being a uh, force sizing argument. Uh, it wasn't allowed as a requirement in, in budget documents. And the new fourth sizing rationale in the Pentagon, he decreed, was uh, assured destruction, which meant a second strike 
Uh, each triad leg was supposed to have the ability to destroy enough of the Soviet Union to dissuade it uh, from fighting, to do enough damage that they would be deterred. And conveniently, that wound up being about the uh, justifying about the force that McNamara had. So it was basically way, a way of saying, stop building more. Let's just coast where we are. Uh, so uh, the arsenal... Uh, officially, was no longer meant to get us out of mutually assured destruction, which is what counterforce did. It was meant, uh, with the survivability rationale, to keep us in mutually assured destruction. That sold better in public than the counterforce argument because it seemed prudential and defensive. And this became and remains the sort of standard public rationale used by defense officials to describe the arsenal's purpose, deterrence, second strike uh, deterrence. And that, as I say, remains the case. But... Uh, it also remains the case that this embrace rhetorically of survivability did not much change the design of weapons. The military, especially the Air Force, uh, maybe because of uh, unstoppable technological momentum, continued to make the missiles more and more accurate uh, and, and to design the warheads in a way uh, where they were optimized uh, to go after enemy silos. Um, meanwhile, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations really did very little to change the uh, single integrated operational plan, the PSYOP, uh, the plan for using nukes, the targeting plan, to implement any doctrinal shift, whether it was the counterforce no cities doctrine or then the survivability story. They basically kept the uh, PSYOP that they inherited, which was the massive retaliation plan. So in a, uh, in a sense, the pursuit of massive, uh, of mad or survivability was always sort of just a public story uh, that covered the preemptive counterforce strategy. And that has been the case, I think, for the history, really, of our uh, arsenal, at least starting in the Kennedy administration. But even the uh, counterforce preemptive story is not totally right, uh, because the uh, United States, for the duration of the Cold War, never really invested enough in first strike capability that we would really have a credible first strike. We had stories about how uh, our first strike might deter the Soviet Union, the countervailing strategy, and so on, but we never really spent enough that it looked like a serious attempt to keep first strike capability. We never adopted civil defense measures that would have heightened our ability to survive whatever the Soviets could shoot back at us if we went first. So uh, the military, the Air Force, could really try for a first strike capability, but within strict sort of fiscal and political limits. And arguably the point was less to have a real first strike capability than to, to convince the Soviets by articulating this uh, counterforce strategy in certain places and uh, planning for it, um, that we uh, could safely start a nuclear war, that we thought we could safely start a nuclear war, that maybe uh, we were a little bit crazy or we believed in our own strange theories and that was enough to deter them. Um, so sort of what we wind up with uh, in the Cold War and still have is sort of an underfunded first strike or counterforce force built around a triad which is justified by a second strike or survivability rhetoric. It's a rather odd thing. Um, the triad remained uh, because it really had no uh, enemies after the early Kennedy years. The Air Force and the Navy sort of learned to cooperate uh, in response to what they saw as McNamara's domination of their uh, budgets. And uh, I think because of the equalization of their... Uh, budget shares, uh, which kept them, uh, removed the incentive to really go after each other's arguments. So now they sort of won or lost together. You grow the whole pie uh, to get a bigger defense budget rather than going after the other services slice. 
Um, and even the arms control community arguably was more interested in promoting uh, weapon survivability than pointing at the triad's access. So we're in this situation for a long time, and I think to a, an extent remain where there, where um, nobody, no big uh, defense community has an incentive to really point out that the triad is sort of a wasteful access. So the debate about nukes, sort of intense as it was at the end of the Cold War, sort of um, allowed the uh, declining logic of the rationales for the triad to survive uh, scrutiny. So sort of several myths, several myths uh, survived appropriate scrutiny. One, I think, as Chris will discuss, was that the survivability of the arsenal was in constant doubt throughout the Cold War. It wasn't. Uh, the Soviets really never had the uh, ability to track our submarines, let alone uh, have a first strike against our ICBMs. And uh, certainly that remains the case uh, for all enemies. Second, uh, submarine counterforce capability, our SLBMs, continued to improve to the point where by the end of the Cold War they were in fact more accurate uh, than uh, ICBMs. And the Navy actually suppressed that information because of its sort of cooperative relationship with the Air Force. Third, and I think most important myth, uh, the problem that our force was really meant to solve, the difficulty of deterring a Soviet invasion of West Germany or Western Europe, was wildly exaggerated, particularly after 1963 with the end of the Berlin crisis and the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the, in the 60s, people like George Kennan and Bernard Brody, who was sort of the father of all this deterrence theory, um, noted that the Soviets didn't seem particularly interested in uh, conquest of West Germany and Western Europe, that they were opportunistic, certainly, and eager to spread communism, but not at the cost of another war. You know, now, today, with a lot of the Soviets' archives open, we know that the leaders, Khrushchev in particular, uh, were quite deterred by the prospect of conventional war. The World War II and World War I experience were not things uh, that they were eager uh, to repeat. It was uh, quite the opposite. They were uh, cataclysmic experiences for the, for the Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, and as analysts at the time noted, by the way, the conventional balance for most of the Cold War was uh, much more favorable to NATO than conventional wisdom uh, would have it. And finally, um, we now know that the Soviets did not think about nuclear deterrence like RAND analysts. They saw war rather like Eisenhower did, as something inherently uncertain and unmanageable that therefore tended to escalate beyond its original stake. So they weren't interested in trying to fight a war under the nuclear umbrella because of some difference in U.S. targeting policy that people at uh, RAND or the United States government thought uh, allowed them to fight a war. Um, they were deterred sort of regardless of the particulars of uh, how we uh, aligned our force. And whatever they said, U.S. leaders behaved as if they agreed uh, in the early Cold War, including the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the U.S. had a better chance at executing a first strike against the Soviet Union than ever after. Our leaders did not feel able to coerce the Soviets into things without giving them uh, diplomatic concessions, uh, as was the case in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, a Cold War irony then, uh, sort of that both sides were so frightened or restrained that they avoided admitting it for fear of emboldening the other. And uh, both sides of the sort of esoteric Cold War debate about uh, nukes, where you have hardliners in the U.S. sort of insisting that counterforce capabilities are necessary to preserve the peace, while arms controllers argue that those uh, counterforce steps push the doomsday clock closer to midnight, both those sides sort of shared the misconception that peace was a delicate creation of intellectual labors or these policy differences. And I think that obscured the robustness 
of the peace that was created by uh, the memory of, of war, particularly World War II, which nukes just made more horrible. Um, so to finish, the, the second strike survivability of the U.S. arsenal was never truly in doubt, has never truly been in doubt. Counterforce uh, was overkill when it came to achieving extended deterrence, defending our allies in Europe. In any case, the triad uh, was not necessary to counterforce. So you can have a, a counterforce-centered force, and a uh, monad will do just fine for you. Over to Chris. Thanks, Ben. Thanks to everyone for being here. And um, I also should thank uh, the Plowshares Fund for their support of this research, which was crucial. This has been a, about a two-year project, and and the paper and the subsequent uh, talks we've given around the city and even around the country uh, have been supported uh, by their help. So I want to thank them. Um, the point, of course, of this sort of research is to shine the light on some debates that really didn't get a lot of attention during the Cold War, and, uh, and it really obscured some of the flaws of the triad's rationales, and limited debate today threatens to do the same. And so you know, our argument is, let's have a debate, and let's uh, uh, test some of these tired old rationales. Uh, I think Ben has already alluded to several of them. I do want to go into a little bit more detail. The, the survivability rationale during the Cold War always required a healthy dose of paranoia. Um, during the Cold War, hawks typically argued either that the Soviets had a first strike against the U.S. land forces or were close enough to try to blackmail us with the threat of one. Um, and again, these claims underestimated the security that warning and silo hardness provided to U.S. forces and overestimated future Soviet production and accuracy. Uh, triad defenders, that is, those who uh, argued against a submarine-only monad but also argued for the necessity of ICBMs and uh, bomber uh, based nuclear weapons, uh, argued that to rely extensively on uh, submarines would open us up to Soviet anti-submarine warfare, that a breakthrough might occur, and therefore we would be foolish to count on SLBMs uh, if the land forces were vulnerable. Uh, but we should point out that U.S. ballistic missile submarines grew quieter with each generation, and the breakthrough was never close. In fact, immediately after the end of the Cold War, the GAO found that U.S. submarines were even less vulnerable to detection than intelligence estimates had assumed. Uh, other hawkish analysts during the Cold War reasoned that SLBMs were too inaccurate for anything but strikes against cities. And this is, again, what relates to what Ben was saying earlier about counterforce. But this was also incorrect. SLBMs could perform counterforce missions. In fact, we now know uh, that they had a counterforce role almost from the very beginning, uh, and then, with the deployment of the Trident II D-5 uh, missiles at the end of the Cold War, they had a better, and still do have a better, hard target kill capability than either Air Force alternative, uh, and comparable, uh, comparably reliable communications linkages as well. That was an another significant improvement from the early Polaris missiles. So the claims about, about accuracy are also uh, incorrect. Now. We could have a separate debate, and I think we should, about whether or not accuracy is actually crucial to counterforce. Um, uh, for what it's worth, the Soviet leaders never indicated that that U.S. deterrence success hint depended on counterforce targeting, uh, again, for the reasons that Ben alluded to. We now know a lot more about Soviet uh, uh, nuclear doctrine and more general war doctrine in, in, in general uh, than we did, of course, even at the end of the Cold War. So the Cold War case for the triad has aged pretty badly. 
Uh, and since then, nuclear weapons have grown less important to U.S. security goals. Uh, and that's why we argue, in part, that's one of the reasons why we argue that a submarine-based force can accomplish uh, those missions that nuclear weapons are meant to serve, namely deterrence, to deter an attack against the United States and arguably against our allies. Now, theories of U.S. nuclear deterrence, even to this day, still come in two variants corresponding to the two missions which we've already discussed. One is a secure second strike capability to ensure that no enemy is tempted to preemptively destroy the U.S. arsenal or use that threat for coercion. Second, the defense of allies, typically called extended deterrence, uh, against nuclear armed rivals is often thought to require the ability to destroy their nuclear weapons preemptively to limit the damage. Uh, that ability, the thinking goes, prevents enemies' arsenals from undermining the credibility of U.S. deterrent threats and our alliance commitments. The point of the second mission, to use an, uh, an old formulation, is not to convince others that you will trade Berlin for New York, but to convince them that you think that your nuclear war plans avoid that trade-off and hence enhances the credibility of the commitments. Now, Modern defenders of the triad rarely explain why any one of those deterrent goals requires a triad. Instead, they tend to offer co combinations of three vaguer arguments. They list each leg's virtues. The bomber's uh, signal resolve, it is said. SSBNs are relatively invulnerable, they admit, and ICBMs are most secure and ready, supposedly. Without arguing that any of the deterrent missions would fail in the absence of any one of those legs. They note that the triad complicates enemy targeting and ensures survivability without establishing the existence of enemies poised to strike first absent those complications, especially in sufficient numbers to completely immobilize all U.S. forces. And they call the triad a hedge against the technical failure of one leg or a sudden enemy capability against it without substantiating those worries. The Obama administration's 2010 nuclear posture review and the Nuclear Employment Strategy Report issued this year follow that similar script, claiming virtues for the triad without explaining why deterrence requires it or even what brand of deterrence is sought. These documents gesture at the two standard Cold War justifications for U.S. nuclear weapons, survivability and counterforce. The case of the triad still depends on its relevance to those goals, and arguably a third goal, which is, for understandable reasons, rarely mentioned explicitly. The United States' ability to conquer states like North Korea, which would likely require the preemptive destruction of their nuclear forces. So in their time remaining, let me just consider a submarine-based MONAD's ability to handle these missions. And I want to reemphasize, Ben alluded to this, we have a particular vision of U.S. foreign policy, which we've articulated many times and our colleagues have at Cato, but we are not making the case for a mod ad on the, on the basis that you, any one of you here, any of you watching, have to adopt our ideas for U.S. foreign policy. The point is that the monad can serve even the most hawkish goals that one might have for U.S. foreign policy. First, submarines are the least vulnerable leg and can covert, uh, covertly approach an enemy's shores to limit flight times. This improves uh, them over the, uh, their counterparts for a number of different reasons. They offer superior hard target capability to ICBMs, in part because of the shorter distances and greater improvements in accuracy that have been developed over the years. No state today threatens the survivability of the 14 Ohio-class submarines, 
And the current plan is to replace these with 12 of the next generation SSBN, SSBN-X it's being called. Given present Soviet, I should say Russian, haha, Russian and Chinese ASW capabilities and their limited efforts to improve them, threats of the survivability of U.S. SSBNs remain a distant prospect. Defenders of the triad, including the Obama administration, caution against relying on these advantages. A submarine monad, they say, puts all our deterrent eggs in one basket and thus might cease to deter due to a technical failure or an adversary's ASW breakthrough. Neither worry is convincing. U.S. SSBNs are a well-tested and refined technology. For an operational problem to cause deterrence failure, an enemy would have to know about it and bet on its occurrence in all deployed submarines. Likewise, to overwhelm that deterrent, an enemy would need not only to have the capability to track and disable the SSBNs, but also near total confidence that they could employ that capability because one failure, after all, would bring mass destruction. Our proposed Monad would, in other words, store the proverbial eggs in at least a dozen mostly well-hidden baskets. The Cold War should provide additional confidence in the, USS, in the U.S. SSBN survivability. Our success in the undersea competition with the Soviet Union, a motivated and capable adversary, suggests that U.S. gains in quieting submarines can continue to outpace enemy gains in detecting them. Remember that Hawks have been warning about SSBN vulnerability for decades, at least since they were deployed in the early 1960s, and it has not yet arrived. Moreover, the effort needed to achieve such technological progress is unlikely to be instant or unknown to U.S. intelligence. The United States would have time to adjust, if need be, by restoring one of those other triad legs. In other words, there are cheaper alternatives than maintaining a second triad leg, a smaller number of nuclear-armed uh, cruise missiles or aircraft capable of deploying gravity bombs could be maintained in secret locations as a hedge if you were uh, not convinced by arguments about the relative invulnerability of our forces and their likelihood to remain so into the future. A second discussion pertains to defending allies and therefore the, the relevance of counterforce. Uh, this is said to be a more demanding mission, although I think the paper shows that it's not as demanding as widely believed. Indeed, counterforce capability is not needed for extended deterrence to work. Scenarios where countervalue threats fail to deter attacks on allies, but counterforce threats succeed are becoming difficult to imagine. What this would entail would be a hypothetical Chinese or Russian regime that is aggressive enough to attack a U.S. ally despite the prospect of conventional war that could escalate into nuclear war. Uh, any such uh, regime that is willing to risk such a thing uh, would not be rational enough to be impressed by counterforce threats. It would essentially be undeterrable. The theory that extended deterrence requires counterforce capability is a Cold War artifact, and I think uh, it deserves much greater scrutiny. There is, a, there is quite a body of literature now in the historical documents uh, and historical work on this, uh, and we try to shine the light on some of these things. Um, now, the third point that I emphasized, or I mentioned at the outset, is that Few will articulate it, but the most plausible counterforce scenario today involves small arsenals, for example, North Korea's. In cases where the United States was helping defend an ally like South Korea, 
conventional deterrence and general nuclear threats would deter for the same reason that I just said. But counterforce capability would be more useful if the United States sought to conquer North Korea. A state defending its border, after all, is relatively likely to use nuclear weapons. If regime survival is at stake, there is little benefit and much to be lost from holding anything back. So conquering a nuclear-armed state, therefore, would require first destroying its nuclear arsenal. Now, uh, I want to emphasize, I'm not arguing that a disarming first strike would be wise. I am arguing that to the extent that U.S. leaders or any other hawks who say that we need a triad to execute these missions say that we still want to be able to do this, this could be done by uh, submarines and submarine launch missiles. After all, intelligence now primarily determines U.S. success in counterforce targeting because of the accuracy gains that we've discussed. And Trident D-5 missiles and their successors have the yield and accuracy to destroy silo-based missiles and all essential targets. The other kind of worry is mobile targets, which are soft targets. The hard part is finding them, not hitting them once found. Okay? So that doesn't really hinge on a capability that does not already exist in the SSBN force. Um, a final argument used to defend the triad says that current U.S. delivery pl platforms prevent nuclear proliferation by reassuring allies and proliferation cascades will occur if particular U.S. nuclear capabilities are no longer operational. I can't go into all the details. In fact, we don't go into all the detail details in the paper on why this is wrong. Uh, but I, let me just offer a few quick ones. First of all, for starters, the predictions of imminent nuclear cascades have been proven wrong time and time again. There is a considerable body of literature on this. Second, our ability to reassure allies depends on the capability to deter, which a submarine-based force maintains, and on U.S. political will to, execute, to act on those commitments, which depends on factors that, technological, uh, uh, that technologies barely affect. Okay? Uh, because a submarine-based monad provides the capability needed for deterrence, it should reassure allies. Third, there are a variety of military and diplomatic methods to assure allies besides expensive nuclear weapons capabilities. And lastly, states seek nuclear weapons to the extent that they do for reasons other than security, including prestige and domestic political concerns. Nuclear security guarantees do nothing to prevent nuclear proliferation motivated by these concerns. The declining military utility of nuclear weapons uh, makes them vulnerable to budget cuts. This is especially the case when austerity threatens other military spending priorities and heightens competitions for resources inside of the Pentagon. And for these, during these times, and we're seeing it play out right now, uh, military service leaders uh, may see nuclear missions as a, a ripe area for cutting to preserve other core capabilities they care more deeply about. Consider, for example, the pressures that the Navy's SSBN modernization program is imposing on the service's other spending priorities. The Navy expects to spend about $77 billion, is the latest estimate of the Navy, developing the 12 SSBN X. Uh, boats. The CBO puts the number around $87 billion over the next three decades. The Navy's annual shipbuilding budget during this time is unlikely to exceed $20 billion a year and likely to be much less than that. So that expense will increasingly conflict with the procurement objectives of the surface and aviation communities in the Navy, generating political pressure on the SSBN X, at least on its cost and perhaps its rational 
rationale entirely. And I should just point out a quick anecdote. Laura mentioned at the outset, I served in the Navy. I was in the surface Navy. Uh, and some of my friends still are, in fact, or recently retired. And they're generally supportive, I find, uh, of the premise that the SSBNs uh, are uh, a critical leg of the triad. And if they were forced to choose, they would retain that leg uh, at the expense of the others, but not at the expense of surface ships. Uh, I bumped into one friend at a recent uh, Cato event, actually, and he said, you know, I agree with you about the boomers, uh, but if they're going to be paid for out of the Navy shipbuilding budget and therefore result in fewer surface ships, then I don't want the SSBNs at all. Let the Air Force have the job of responsible for nuclear deterrence. And again, I, most of my conversations are with my Navy colleagues and, and, and friends, I, I'm sure that similar conversations, uh, you could generate a similar conversation among Air Force officers and Air Force supporters. So when I hear people say, you're not talking about saving that much money, $20 billion a year, what's that? And I say, tell that to the people who are concerned about the trade-offs inside of the services, not between the military as a whole and our other domestic priorities around the country. Um, in conclusion, Cold War stability never required a triad. We now know that. It didn't require a counterforce doctrine. And the massive nuclear arsenal we bought was overkill. But post-Cold War stability requires all of those things, even less. <laughs> uh, the stories used to justify our military posture, year after year, exaggerate the precariousness of great power peace and the difficulty of deterring aggression. Even if one believes that peace depends on the United States' ability to deter nuclear-armed states' aggression by denuding them of their deterrent. There is no need for three costly delivery systems. A submarine-based monad, along with the conventional capability that we have, can provide all the deterrence we need and generate savings. We estimate about $20 billion a year. Moving from a triad to a submarine-based monad only won't be easy, but politics are lately improving the odds. Military leaders pressed to trim may see nuclear weapons as an attractive target, especially given their irrelevance to recent U.S. wars. And policymakers should exploit these circumstances to improve strategic debate. Unity is necessary in warfare, but dissent is a reliable source of insight in preparing for war. Pentagon competition helped create the triad. Restored competition could help kill it. Thank you very much.